They experience sorrow because of their sin, but the sorrow stemmed from the consequence of their sin and not because of the sin itself. So God sends them a messenger. He sends them a prophet, a preacher, uh, out of his grace as an act of grace to help get their attention where it ought to be. He, he, he draws their attention away from uh, what's happening, their, their, their temporal suffering, and he draws their attention back to God itself and, and how where they're really suffering is in their relationship with a holy God. The problem was it didn't work. We would have thought that by his grace and extending this preacher to preach to them, to show them what the problem was, you would think at some point they would come around and they would begin to repent, but they still don't. They, they just continue to live in regret rather than in true repentance. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm fairly patient, but not nearly as patient as God. Amen? And, uh, and, and right now, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me, at least from a humanistic perspective, to say, okay, God, look, he gave it a try. You know, just wash your hands of it, go your way, and find some new people. But he doesn't. Instead, what he does is, even in light of their continued sin, he still continues to show even more and more and more grace. In fact, the whole chapter 6 is filled with God's grace in the form of what he gives to his people. So he's going to keep demonstrating his grace. He's going to keep giving the people what they don't deserve. And it's demonstrated most clearly in what he continues to give them. So that's what we want to take a look at this morning. We want to look at God's grace and how that grace is extended to us by what he gives. And there's three things that we see that he continually gives his people. The first thing that we see that he gives so graciously is a promise. He gives a promise. Now, look at verse 11, if you will. The Bible says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite. He says, While his son Gideon was, was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So remember, at this time in their history, what's happening is the Midianites keep oppressing God's people. Um, every time, about the same time of year, they're about to bring in the harvest, they're about to gather all the crops, and as soon as they begin to do it, here come the Midians like a bunch of locusts, and they fall down on the people, devour all their crops, and leave the people in a consistent state of fear and at borderline starvation. And so what we find here is a little snippet of, what, of how they were living their lives. We see that Gibeon is, is in a wine press. He's behind closed doors. It, he, he's in a place that normally you'd be making wine, but instead he's, he's beating out the chaff. He's beating out the wheat behind closed doors in fear. Now, he's in fear, and then all of a sudden he gets this comforting word. The Bible says the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, what's funny is he calls him mighty man of valor, and he's hiding behind locked doors, scared that somebody's going to take his wheat, right? Now, we're going to look more into that next week in chapter 7, but what I want to draw your attention to is the promise. Look at the promise that he's given. The Lord is with you. Do you see that? Now, the word for that, the reason that God brings him that, that, that word and that promise is for the purpose of comforting him. But what we find is it doesn't bring him so much comfort as it does confusion. Look at Gideon's response. Gideon responds in verse 13, and it says, And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? And now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon is thinking much like you and I. 
he's actually acting much like you and I would in this circumstance and do in these circumstances. We have a tendency, and see, see if this is right, we have a tendency, Gideon has a tendency, to believe that when everything is coming up roses, that God's happy with us and everything is going well. That it's not hard to see that God is with us when things are going right. And that was the case for Gideon. He goes, what happened to the times that you were with your people? Like, like our forefathers used to tell us those stories, how you delivered them from Egypt, how you sent the plagues, how you, how you divided the Red Sea. He, he says, that was when you were really with your people. But now when he looks, he says, but you're not with us now. Why? Again, we have a tendency to believe when things are not going well. When we're in the midst of suffering, when we're being oppressed, when we're in times of difficulty, we naturally believe that God is off somewhere that he's abandoned us somewhere. Isn't this true? We think, God, where, we say things like, God, where are you in the midst of all of this? And what God's trying to affirm to them and to us is God hasn't gone anywhere. God is there in those times of victory and God is there in the time of difficulty. And, and, and now, now notice this. Um, what we find next is, is this. We find um, in verse 14, it says, now the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might. You, you notice that God doesn't answer the question, by the way. Uh, he, he asked the question, you know, where are you? Why is this happening to us? Well, he's already explained why it's happened to him. He said, it, it, it's happened to you because of your, your unwillingness to obey me, okay? But we're going to see his grace because God is going to continue to save them even though they're being unfaithful to him. Notice in verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian, and do not I send you. And he said to him, here's Gideon responding, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. What is Gideon doing? He's being like you and I again, right? God, he's responding the same way we do when God calls us to do something difficult. Instead of obeying him in our faith, we tend to make what excuses of why we can't possibly do what it is that God's calling him to do. He's, he, that's what he's doing here. He says, listen, I'm from Manasseh. It was the weakest tribe of all 12, the most insignificant of all the 12 tribes. He says, of that in the tribe, he goes, I'm the weakest of all the clans within it. And then even in my own household, I'm the weakest of all of it. So he's given some really good evidence. Really, he thinks he's given great evidence of why God shouldn't use him when all the time he's actually given wonderful advice or evidence of why God is going to use him. Remember, we've already learned this in, in the book of Judges, that when God's looking for people to use, he's not often or always looking for the brightest and the best. He's looking for the least, right? Why? So that when something, when God does something supernatural through them, that he alone will receive the glory for it. So he thinks, great evidence, why you shouldn't use me? God's saying all the more, this is great evidence of why I want to use you. Now notice verse 16. And the Bible says there, it says, And the Lord said to, to him, but I will be with you. Did you notice that? Same promise. So, so catch this. When he's fearful for his well-being, when he's fearful about whether he's going to have enough food to eat, his family's going to have enough food to eat, when he's fearful that the enemy's going to come on him and kill him or, or take what little it is that he has to be able to survive on, God comes to him and says, I'm with you. When God calls him to do something great, and yet he's experiencing fear and inadequacy, and he's uh, uh, not sure of himself, God comes and he says the same exact thing. What does he say? I am 
with you. It seems like of all the promises of God, this is his go-to promise for his people that are struggling to trust God. Because he not only uses this promise for Gideon, but when we survey the scriptures, we see that, again, he uses this promise over and over again to assure the people of God. Think of Moses for a minute. Remember, God comes to Moses and he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. He says, I don't want to go to Pharaoh, right? I mean, I I don't want to go over there. And then he begins to use the same excuses that Gideon did. I can't speak. I stumble over my words. I stutter. God says, go. What promise does he give him? And I will be what? I will be with you. We see it again with Joshua in the beginning of the book of Joshua. Now get this. Joshua, uh, Moses has died. Huge vacuum of leadership because of his death. Now Joshua is supposed to lead the people into the promised land. Y'all look this way. I'm the one preaching, not people walking in, all right? So look this way. I worked hard on this. Listen, all right? So look this way. So I know it's very distracting, all right? But but focus. This is the word that God wants for you. Here's the idea. Um, He comes, and, and, and Joshua is afraid. He says, go, lead the people. He's afraid of leading the people. This is what God says. Here's his promise. I will be with you, okay? He does the same thing with Gideon. Fast forward to the New Testament. We get to the New Testament after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He appears to his people for a period of 40 days, appearing and reappearing. At the end of that 40 days, he gathers his disciples on a mountain where he's about to ascend into heaven. He's he's almost gone, and this is what he says. I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel making disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I have taught you. Now, don't you think that that was a huge task? Huge task, just like for Moses, just like for Joshua, just like for Gideon. And he says in the midst of that task, in the midst of their fear, this is what he tells them. Here's the promise. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what God expects is that when his people are in fear, What they need most is a reminder in the reality that they are not alone, but that God himself is with them. Now, that should be enough, but but, but notice something that happens in verse 17. Listen, look at Gideon's response. Verse 17 says, and he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. So some people have beaten Gideon up for this. They sit there and say, hey, he's not showing faith. The word of God should be enough. But I want you to read it very carefully. He he said to them in in his request, he says, show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. He doesn't have a problem with the promise of God, God saying that I'm with you. That's enough for him. He needs to know and needs assurance that what's being said by this, we know to be the angel of the Lord. He doesn't know it's the angel of the Lord. He, he just thinks it's some prophet, some person speaking to him. And he goes, I need to know that the promise that you're giving me is actually from you. So we request a sign. In the Old Testament, that wasn't a demonstration of a lack of faith, per se. In fact, uh, when they didn't have the whole counsel of the Word of God. They didn't have the completed canon of the Word of God. So the only way to know if somebody was speaking on behalf of God was to request a sign of them, to know, a miraculous sign, to know whether they were truly from God or not. So he's doing everything right. This is actually what they were supposed to do. So he says, "Are you? show me a sign. So here's what he does. He goes, into, uh, he goes into his house. He asks, he asks the messenger, stay here. I'm going to go into my house. You promise you'll stay? Yes, I'll stay. He goes in, and he begins to cook up everything that we normally cook up on Sunday morning, nice, a nice goat, 
right? And, uh, and some nice unleavened cakes, right, right, on the side. And he gets the broth. He puts it in a basket. He gets the broth. He puts it in, in, in a bowl, uh, in a pot. And he takes it out. And he goes, here's your meal, all right? Now, I don't know what he's expecting at this point. I don't know if he's going to eat, and then he's trying to think up what sign he wants for him or not. But, but the messenger, the angel of the Lord, tells him, he says, take it over and put it on the rock. Then I want you to take the breath, breath the broth, that would be weird. Uh, take, the, the, take the broth and pour it all over the food. He does. And then all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord steps, puts out his staff, touches the food. Fire comes up from the stone and consumes it all, and the angel of the Lord, the messenger, disappears. Well, that does it for him, all right? That would do it for me. It does it for him. He's like, okay, this is God. This is enough. This is the promise of God, and it was enough for him. Here's what I want to ask you. I, I, I know this. In the midst of their suffering, remember, they brought this suffering upon themselves. God's assurance to them is even in your suffering, that you're in, even in your sin, that you've brought upon yourself, even though you and I would think very clearly that God would be long off and God would remove himself, here's the amazing part of his grace. He says, even in the midst of that, I am with you. I am there with you. And, and here's, here's the crazy part. God normally doesn't answer so many of the questions that we want him to answer when we're in the midst of suffering, right? We want to know the whens, the wheres, the whys, the hows, but he doesn't answer any of those. Have you noticed that? The only thing he ever answers for us in the midst of this is the who. He says, I'm not going to answer you when you get out of this. I'm not going to tell you how or any of those things. What I'm telling you clearly right now is who is with you, and that should be enough. It was enough for God's people then. Let me ask you, is it enough for you now? Is it enough for God's people now? Is it enough for you to know in the midst of all that, and you don't know when the suffering is going to end or when it's going to begin to know that God is with you. God believed it was enough. Do we believe it's enough? He demonstrates his grace, grace through what he gives them. And what does he give them? He gives them a promise. Secondly, his grace is demonstrated not only through, through the promise that he gives, but also that he gives a command. Now, follow with me in verse 25. Note this. It says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar to Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of, of the Ashtoreth that you shall cut down. So what is he calling him to do? And literally, he's telling them, I want you to tear down the idols. I want you to tear down the altar to Baal. I want you to tear down the altar to Ashtoreth. Remember, Ashtoreth was the female deity, the female goddess, who was a companion with Baal. Okay, he says, I want you to tear down these altars, and I want you to build an altar to God, to me alone. That's it. So that's what he's literally commanding him to do. But spiritually, what is, he, what is he trying to get at? What is he saying? God is commanding the people to rid themselves of their idols and worship him alone. See, that's what the people have been struggling with. Don't, don't think that in their disobedience, what the people have done is rejected God and the worship of God altogether. That's not what they've done. What they've done is, that is their formal uh, worship. Their formal worship is to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what they did is it's not that they abandoned their former religion. It's that they added the new religions onto their former religion. 
So they were worshiping God as a formal act of worship, but through the everyday, as they thought that it was necessary, they begin to worship Baal and the Ashtoreth. You, you get that? Why would, now, why would they do that? Because they failed to entrust their God or believe that their God could give them what it ultimately was that they needed. So they would go to these other gods. Remember that Baal is the god of agriculture and the god of fertility. And so when, what they would do is they would go and worship on the weekends. And then during the week, as the day, week began to play out, they would and interact in idol worship to secure, to bring more security, to get what they want or to bring some type of gratification for themselves. I don't know about you, but it's really not hard for me to identify with what's going on here. Is it for you? Stop and think about our culture for a minute in Nassau County in Northeast Florida. Think about how many religious folks are going to church this morning all over Nassau County. They're going, they're, they're singing songs just like we did. They're, 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 they're listening to messages. They're, they may give a little bit. They may even serve a little bit. Their formal religion is what? Christianity. They will tell you that they're a follower of Jesus Christ. Monday comes, what happens? They begin to take that religion, add the worship of their idols, and all through the week, pragmatically, practically, they're worshiping their jobs, People are worshiping their, 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 their money, they're worshiping their boats, they're worshiping their cars, they're worshiping their money, they're worshiping all these other things. They're taking their overall religion and they're weaving into it their idolatry. And so what God is in essence saying is he says, you can't have it this way. You can't have it this way. He says, you're calling for my help, you want my help. If you want my help to get you out of this very clear problem that you're in, very obvious problem that you're in, then you're going to have to abandon the idols that got you in that problem if you want me to take you out. You've got to make a decision. So get rid of your altar, get rid of your idols, and submit to me. This is a clear command all the way through the word of God, is it not? I mean, the very first commandment says what? You should have no other God before me. The second command is what? You should make no graven image. Do you think God is big on the whole idol thing? He, he says the greatest commandment, summing up all the word of God. How do you sum it up? Jesus says this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is no room for your greatest affections to go to anything else. It's to be reserved for me alone. Jesus says it this way when he gets to the New Testament. He says, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will love one and hate the other, or you'll hate one and love the other. Man cannot serve both God and what? And money. Or God or anything else. So they're saying, Jesus in, 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 in Matthew 6, and in, in, in here in Judges chapter 6, it's saying the same thing. You can't have it both ways. If you're crying out for God to rescue out of the problem that you found yourself in, then let go of the idol, and it'll help you out. So I, I think this is very similar to what was happening with the rich young ruler. Remember this young man? Rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he tells him, he says, listen, I need help. How do I have eternal life? Does that sound like a man that knows that he's in trouble? He knows that he doesn't have eternal life because of his own sin. He wants help from Jesus to figure out how to have eternal life. What does Jesus do? He takes him straight to his idol. Same lesson. He says, you've done all these other things, but here's what you have to do. He looks straight at him, and he says, sell everything you have and follow me. And the Bible says he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He walked away saddened and down in his heart because he couldn't give up the idol. What was Jesus saying? You want me to get you out? You want me to take you out of the oppression that you're in? You've got to let go of the idol and you have to worship me and me alone. Listen, guys, 
I don't even know how much further I have to go with that pragmatically, but let me take one more step, maybe to develop it a little bit more. There are people here, there, me, myself, you, everything, we find ourselves suffering because of our own sin oftentimes, yes? Sometimes it's not directly because of sin or our sin, but sometimes we know, we don't need to know the times, we don't need God to reveal oftentimes when we have made a mess of things and we are struggling, and, and, and whether it's in marriage or whether it's in finance, and God's really saying the same exact thing. He's saying, hey, listen, I know your finances are a mess. My brother is teaching a finance class, which is wonderful, but I, I wish you'd weave this in there somehow into the, in, into the material. Just sitting there and go, hey, the reason you're in the condition that you're in is because money was your idol. You went after it. You went beyond what God said that you should be doing with your money. Now, the only way for you to be able to get out of that is to let go and abandon that idol and now begin to submit yourself to the lordship of God himself. You see that? Same thing with a marriage. When marriages are falling apart, listen, somebody is at fault when the marriage is falling apart. Do, do, do we get that? When it's a mess, somebody's, it just doesn't happen, all right? Somebody's at fault, and it's not one, it's almost always both. I'll just say, it's always both. So to some extent, it's always both. There can be a more guilty party, I'm not denying that, but you get into that, and, and why do marriages fall apart? Because of idol worship. Because there's a, there's, a, there's a passion, there's a desire, there's a happiness that they're pursuing. The marriage is not doing it for them. They're not relying on God to do it for them. So what do they do? They get angry with each other. God says, you want out of the very clear problem that you have? Then abandon the idol that got you in the mess, and I'll lead you out of it. You with me? So there's the grace of God. And, and, and him telling that is an act of grace. He could just leave them there. But he doesn't. He tells them how we get out of it. So how is God's grace demonstrated here? It's demonstrated, uh, first of all, as we see in the word of God, it's demonstrated that he gives us a promise. He gives us a command. And here's the third thing. He gives us assurance. Now, notice in verse 27. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants, and he did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Now, commentators, again, and I feel bad for Gideon because so far I think he's been a great man of integrity and a great man of faith, but everybody keeps bashing on the poor guy. They're like, look at that. He obeyed, but he obeyed at night because he was afraid of his family and he was afraid of the people in his town that they were going to do something about, you know, to him. Well, what we're going to find in a minute, he had good reason for concern. They do want to kill him because of what he ultimately did. But my thing is, is who cares if he did it at night? Right? I mean, that's what I, I'm reading commentators, other people's takes. I'm listening to other, somebody, and I'm like, who cares if, if he's afraid to do what it is, and, and he does it at night and during the day. Did God say you must do it in the day? You must put on a cape and look like a superhero of faith to do what it is that I'm calling you to do? No. He says, just do it, and, and he does it. And yeah, he's fearful, but I could almost make a greater argument that he actually has greater faith than if he had no fear at all. Because here's a man, if he had no fear at all, and he's just like, hey, here we go. I'm just going to tear it down. Here, everybody, here I am to destroy your altars. You're like, hey, that's great faith. But what happens when a person is scared to death and knows that they're going to be put to death, but yet they're obedient to God anyway in the midst of the fear? See, you and I, as believers, we put way too much focus on what we feel, way too much emphasis on what we feel. You could be complete. I've seen people who are completely obedient to God, doing what God wants to do. They feel like miserable failures because inside their heart is full of fear. 
It's ridiculous, man. Look, God is not looking for consistency in your emotion because you ain't never going to get it, all right? We're up and we're down and we're all over the place emotionally. Would you agree most of the time? I know some of you are not, but most people, all right, who have a heart, all right, they, they are kind of fluctuating with their emotion. But God isn't trying to come to stabilize your emotion. He's coming to look for consistency in your obedience to him. So I don't know, it's just a great point, trying to point it out. It's obedience. No matter what you're feeling, it doesn't matter what you're feeling. It's matter what you're doing, and he's obedient here. And again, as we said, for good reason, he was afraid. Uh, they, b- the people begin to find out, ask questions. Who, who tore down our Baal altar? Ashtaroth, both of them are destroyed. Now we got this other altar to God. Who went about doing this? They begin to ask around, and then they finally figure it out. They go to Joash's house, and they say, Joash, bring out your son that he may die for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Ashtaroth. He goes, he goes, beside it. So they want to kill him. They want to put him to death. Now, you and I well know he can't die at this point, right? Because God already said that he's going to rescue his people. And how in the world is a dead deliverer going to rescue his people, right? He, we know that he has to live through this some way, somehow. But I will tell you in saying that, I hope that your, your thoughts begin to gravitate to the future deliverer who will, in fact, have to die to rescue his people from the ultimate enemy of sin, and his name is Jesus Christ. But Gideon is not Christ. He's got to be able to live. And so his dad comes to his defense, as all good dads do, and basically, in a nutshell, he says, well, this is what he's saying. He's saying, well, if Baal is, is an actual god, then he should be able to defend himself, and he shouldn't need his people to defend him, so let him defend himself. Well, for whatever reason... It cooled the people off, and I guess they were more logical than most people. And they said, okay, well, that sounds pretty good. We'll let let Baal defend himself and see if he's alive the next day. Well, this is just enough wisdom to be able to allow God to be able for, for God to fulfill his purposes. And so here's what happens. They begin to get a group of people together. Verse 33, uh, they begin to get the Midianites together, begin to gather them together. And, uh, and they're getting their armies together because, because uh, against Israel once again. So Gideon, who was called of God to go up against them, to fight up against them, he begins to gather all of his men together. But before he goes, he just wants to make certain that all this is good, right? So he does the fleece. We're all familiar with the fleece story, right? Well, let's look at it. Uh, here's what he does. He comes to God and he says, okay, God, just want to make sure, just need a little assurance here that you're actually in this, that you're actually going to give me victory at my hand of our enemies. So I'm just going to ask you to do something. I've got this fleece. It's really cool. It's got a Nike swoosh on it. It's, it's awesome, awesome. I, I want to take it outside, and what I want to do is I want in the morning, if, if you're going to give me the victory, I want the, the, the fleece to be wet and the ground to be dry. If you give that to me, I know that you're going to be with me, okay? And so at the next point, next morning wakes up, Exactly that. The fleece is sopping wet. The ground is dry. It's so wet, he's able to wring it out and fill up a bowl of water. And then, for whatever reason, it's not enough for him. All right? So he sits there and he's probably thinking, well, you know, wool actually absorbs moisture um, and holds moisture. Man, you know, scientifically, I probably should have done it the other way. So, so then he comes back and he says to God, he says, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just one more fleece. Real quick, you ever felt that way with God? Just going, you've shown me enough. I know enough. 
I can identify with this guy, but God, I, I just need to know you're in this. I, I need to know you're true. I need to know you're faithful in this. And, and, he, and he says, please, let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground, let it be dew. And then it says, and God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Well, so what are we supposed to make of this whole fleece thing? Right? What, what are we supposed to, I mean, honestly, what, is it giving us a prescription on how to determine the will of God and be assured in the will of God? In other words, it, but let me just put it this way. I think many of us think it is. I don't think it's supposed to be. Um, a lot of us do the whole fleece thing. So we'll say, hey, listen, God, do you really want me to marry her? If you want me to marry her, and don't, don't act like you've never done something like this. If, you, if this is really the one for me, let her call between 8 o'clock in the morning and 8.02 in the morning. And what's funny is, if she doesn't call, you give God one more chance, right? right? I mean, if you really like her, we're going to give you one more chance. Or, 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 or something like this, and, and, and uh, I'm, by the way, I'm giving personal examples, just so you know. Um, or, or you do something like this, you say, okay, God, we're, we're going to go buy this house, and, but we just need to know, God, that you're in this house, and, and that you want us to be able to buy this house. So I'm going to the hospital today, or I'm going to the mall today, and let's use you, not me. And, um, and let's go to the mall today. And God, if this is of you, let us get a front row parking spot because we know there's never a front row parking spot, okay? And so you drive up, and if it's there, hey, great. So is this what God is doing? Is he saying, hey, here's a really nifty way for you to determine the will of God and be assured in, in, in you doing what he's called you to do? No, I don't think so. Again, we have to remember this. In understanding the word of God, narratives like this are descriptive. They're not prescriptive, okay? They're not always telling you this is how you ought to do things. You say, well, then what do we do? Well, I don't think really the focus is really on Gideon at all and what Gideon is doing. I think what we need to gather is what God is doing. And so what, what, what God is doing is God is being incredibly patient with his weakness, He's being incredibly patient and nurturing and loving. Don't you love that God doesn't just sit back and go, you big, giant wuss? Right? I mean, that would make some Bible right there, right? I mean, you big, giant wimp. You big pansy. I've already told you, get up and go do it. All right? Now, we as horrible fathers may do things like that, but God is showing far more patience right, with us. He's, he, he, and I don't think that this is... There's a reserve in the heart of him, and God identifies that reserve. You know, there's a difference between us having reservations and being nervous about doing what God has called us to do and us just belaboring and not doing what God wants us to do simply out of strict disobedience. Do you, do you, you know there's kind of a difference there? And God comes along, and he wants to assure us, it's okay. It's all right. I'm coming just to let you know this is all right, and I'm going to assure you and give the assurance that you need. Why? Because he wants to foster our faith. He wants to foster our faith. Those are three beautiful pictures, I think, of how God extends his grace for us. In conclusion, what I want to do is I want to jump back just for a second in one text, one part of the scripture, just to show you something very quickly. I, you remember back to the angel of the Lord? When first the angel of the Lord appears to him, he's not really quite sure who it is, all that. People have really argued over who is this angel of the Lord exactly. Some people would say it's merely an angel. The reason for that is because in verse 12 and verse 20, uh, the Bible says the angel said. So it identifies him as an angel. 
Others have suggested that it's more than just an angel. This is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And what they do is we look at some verses, 14, verse 14, 16, 18. 14, for example, says this. says, the Lord turned to him and said. So I think because of that, I think the evidence here, and even the way that he responded, isn't he shocked? I mean, he's blown away by who this is, right? He's like, now I've seen the face of the angel of the Lord. I mean, this is a big thing. And what's amazing is he's surprised, and the angel has to tell him, don't be afraid. Don't, don't be afraid. You're, you're not going to die. And he is shocked because he's looked God in the face, and he doesn't die. That doesn't happen. So he comes, he's astounded that he's able to see God in the face. He doesn't die because of his sin and because of his wickedness. So in light of worship, what does he do? He builds an altar and he begins to make a sacrifice to God. And what's interesting is he calls the altar, the Lord is peace. The Lord is peace. A couple things I just want to point out here is this. It's interesting to me that when we look back to the cross and we see Jesus dying on the cross, we know very clearly that Jesus was interested in saving people, right? And we look today and we think about how Jesus is interested in saving people. But even way back then, thousands of years, Jesus was still in the process of saving people. Jesus is about saving you and he's about saving me. And you say, how does he do that? He does it by being an intermediary between God and men and allowing us to be in the presence of God without us dying, just like he did for Gideon. How does he do it, though? He does it by becoming sin. He becomes sin, who knew no sin, so that you and I might become his righteousness. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, there was something spectacular happening. Your sin and my sin and the sin of all those that, that, that he would save fell on the shoulders of Jesus Christ and they burned there and he paid for those sins until it satisfied God. Now, for all those who are in faith in Jesus Christ, who have been saved by his grace and who have been saved by his mercy, can be in the presence of God. Why? Because those sins have been satisfied before God. Listen, here's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. A couple things. God gives a grace of a promise. For some of you, you need to know in the midst, you're looking for all kinds of answering concerning your suffering. What you need to know first and foremost, what God wants you to know first and foremost, is that you're not alone. God is with you. Some of you are in the mess. You're trying to figure out how to get out of the mess that you yourself have caused, that I myself have caused. I've got myself into this hurt. I've got myself into this problem. Because of my idol worship, God says, I'm here to help you. I'm not only here with you, but if, we're gonna, if I'm going to lead you out of this very obvious problem that you're having, you've got to let go of that idol. You've got to repent from it. I'll take you out. And finally, as we're making those steps of faith, be assured that God is an assuring God who comes up alongside of us and says, not being angry because of the fragility of your faith, but rather he sees the little bit of faith and he keeps coaxing it into himself and assuring you that he's there, that he's going to help. He wants to build that faith in you. The greatest thing that we need to understand that was the greatest act of mercy and grace he's ever bestowed was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We thank you this morning and God, we, uh, 
we just need you to move in our hearts. We need you to move us. We need, uh, we need you to encourage us in light of the teaching of your word. God, what an amazing demonstration of your grace that you've shown in all of this. God, I just pray that we would experience firsthand. It's one thing to be able to come this morning and just hear a story about the word. It's another thing to be gripped by it. God, would you grip us by this truth today? And we'll rejoice and worship you. Lord, we love you. We praise you in your name. Amen. Would you stand? Would you stand? And uh, altar's open. I, I would love to pray with you. Whatever's on your heart this morning, I would love to pray with you about. But just do business with God during this time. All right? Well, amen. I'm going to ask Brother Dan to come and our ushers to come at this time as we continue to worship God and, and uh, our tithes and offerings. Brother, will you pray for us?